0: Hello, 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 and welcome to The Peanut Gallery. My name is Tim Scott, and I'm sitting across from my friend... George Harder. That's me. he is. The man, the myth, the legend. Uh, I'm very
1: famous in a very small group of people.
0: Well, that's more than some of us. Uh, Hey, today on The Peanut Gallery, I wanted to talk about and kind of explore the evolution of musical theater, and what I mean by that is how... The scenic components have evolved over the years from operetta, you know, the showboat and pre-showboat days of uh, Heimerstein and Kern to the mega musicals of the 90s to how they've kind of gone back to an essential version of musical theater if you look at Broadway right now. So I was hoping you could kind of give us an overview of of like the Leip operetta operetta scenic and how they ap- approached production and what those productions may have looked like you know at the turn of the century gilbert and sullivan before musical theater and broadway really took off
1: i think it might be important to put in folks head that to begin remember musical theater is america's contribution to the theatrical arts I mean, theater started in Greece over 2,000 years ago and in China long before that. But America's unique contribution to that theatrical art form is the musical comedy. That said, where did that come from? I think mainly two different sources. One certainly is the operetta of Europe. That was the template. Uh, Light operetta, uh, were very similar in form to what we think of as a musical comedy today. Many of them had a comic relief song. That's one of the things that defines a musical comedy. You have to have a comic (laughs) relief song. Uh, So that's the template, but also what's kind of rolled into that, especially around 1900, is it's important to recall what was the most popular form of mass entertainment In the United States, prior to the rise of radio uh, records and so forth, people don't want to think about this, but it was minstrelsy, blackface minstrelsy. That was the most common and most popular form of mass entertainment. They toured through every small town in America. By about 1915, 1916, that gradually morphed away from blackface minstrelsy into the vaudeville variety show. At the same time, what producers were doing, uh, it's a little, little complicated. I'll try to give the thumbnail version of this, but what, what producers started doing is that they were going down the Tin Pan Alley, 28th Street in like a farmer's market, uh, buying the freshest songs from the different publishing houses, going back, Changing two notes, two words of the lyric, and putting their own name on it because they bought the song. They owned the song. Composers got together, Irving Berlin was one of them, Jerome Kern was another one, and a few others, and formed the American Society of Authors, Composers, and Publishers, ASCAP. And they started a system whereby, yes, they would work for the publishing house on a salary, but when the song was completed, the publishing house did not own the song, could not sell the song. The composer retained a certain right to the song, and the songs were rented from the publishing house with a royalty being paid. That system's still in place today. When you do Carousel or Titanic at your local theater, you pay a royalty. They send you all the music when you're done with it, you send it back. You don't you don't own it. So that caused the producers now to try to cut out the middleman and they went directly to the composer and said hey Gershwin Jerome Kern instead of us going to the publishing house and you know renting these songs why don't you just write all the songs for the show and then they would put a story around it what do you th- the think those shows being, go ahead what do you think those shows looked like though
0: you know bef- this is I mean, there's some historical records of what the shows look like, but I'm just saying when you go to a musical today, you have an idea of what you're going to see. What might you have seen then? Is it just all of the drops, big painted drops and, and limited scenery in between? Because most of it was this massive orchestra. Obviously, no microphones back then, so you had to have people that could really
1: project over that orchestral sound. Before Showboat what a musical would have looked like would, would look like a hybrid between something akin to a European operetta and a vaudeville variety show. Cause they started when you had one composer writing all the songs. Now the show was all of one piece. It was something cut from one piece of cloth and they would put the barest excuse of the story. Boy gets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl back, that sort of thing. Uh, this, it, the, the shows were song-driven. They were not story-driven. You went to the show to see uh, a particular dance production number. You went to see uh, a great star like Eddie Cantor or uh, in the early days maybe uh, Ethel Merman. Uh, you went to see a reigning Broadway star of the day perform in the show. You didn't go for the story, uh, the, the story was just an excuse to sing the popular songs. And then they would sell the sheet music in the lobby uh, after the show, of course, now they'd sell the CD. Uh, so it would have looked very much like a vaudeville variety show, but with a common thread. In fact, sometimes I think in those early years, they actually had different acts that they would put into the musical. Uh, jugglers and so forth. During intermission, they would have a vaudeville, a, a variety show, uh, uh, maybe a dance number, a trained dog act before the <laughs> before the musical began.
0: And that and that
1: format pretty
0: much was sustained I- until Oklahoma. Really, I mean, Showboat had something to say
1: about it. Yes, but then it kind of went back. That was an aberration in 1927.
0: So Oklahoma comes around in 1943 and that changes the landscape of how musical theater is made and how it's told. And that format in terms of again just what the shows may have looked like, that format pretty much stayed in place for for what? 20, 30 years until maybe the 70s?
1: Until Stephen Sondheim came along. And how did and and, and
0: again, not exactly how how the score or the music was laid out, but just in terms of when you go to the theater and when you look at a show. Now, when you get into Stephen Sondheim and West Side Story and some of his earlier work, how did that
1: change? How did it shift how how the musicals looked? Let me begin that with a, a a famous quote by the late Hal Prince. He said that some people go to the theater to be tickled and some people go to the theater to see a little blood drawn. And I think that once the uh, tickled go-to-the-show-to-be-tickled musical ran its course, I think producers and composers were trying to figure out, it's especially true of West Side Story, how they could draw people into the theater by buying a ticket to be tickled and then give them a little blood drawn. That was very true of West Side Story because in Leonard Bernstein's uh, diary entries, he said... Uh, something to the effect of can we we write a musical comedy that is like an opera uh, with not a happy ending the romeo and juliet story where people die at the end in a musical comedy it's never been done before i wonder if we can succeed Do you think
0: the success of West Side Story was kind of a precursor to Sondheim writing Sweeney Todd, saying, listen, I know it can work. I know this is successful. I know
1: we can be bloody as hell, and people will come out in droves. I don't think Sondheim kept in the back of his mind, well, West Side Story was a success. I think I can pull this off, because when what I think Sondheim was trying to... uh, overcome a different challenge with, with Sweeney Todd. He was trying to, and he said this himself in finishing that, uh, he wanted to see if he could take a, like a horror movie and put it in a live stage show. He wanted to scare the hell out of people with a musical. Yeah, but that's the same thing. I
0: mean, that's the same thing as that Harold Prince quote where you're yes. like, tickle them oh, oh, and then yeah. draw blood. Yes. So it's basically the same kind of Uh, approach at least where you're like I want to take a horror movie and musicalize it and I think people will eat it up which perfectly plays into the evolution from going from operettas to you know grand musicals with grand drapes and drops into more visceral approaches with West Side Story and then of course with Sweeney Todd If you think about the original production of Sweeney Todd, and you can find it on on YouTube and other places, I love it. Angela Lansbury and George Hearn. I know George Hearn replaced, was it Len Kairou? Len Kairou. Len Kairou, yeah. I love George Hearn in in those uh, videos that I see. But you see the set. And the design components look very different from what you might have seen. It almost has a black and white feel to it. The two-layer set. Industrial. Industrial. looking Very industrial, yeah. And, And the way they had to execute, no pun intended, the murder of all the victims. That was a different thing than what we had seen in musical theater and on Broadway for
1: maybe forever. It is a very interesting evolution because you are talking about the commercial theater. A show doesn't succeed or have life unless people buy tickets to it unless they pony up today almost $200 dollars to see the damn thing. But at the same time composers, producers, uh, writers and so forth, they want to be challenged they want to don't want to keep doing the same thing over and over they want to they want to do something fresh and new. The audience wants something fresh and new. But how you do that in the, atmosphere of the commercial theater where people have to pony up uh, a significant amount of money in order to see it. Now, Sweeney Todd was the late 70s. It's 1979.
0: Right. And that's 10 years after a musical like Hair, which was off Broadway in 1968, on Broadway in 1969, which changed the landscape of musical theater as well. Also challenged people and got Butts in the seats for a different reason. Um, and how does that play into the evolution? You know, you had naked people on stage during Hair. You had it being a very protest driven musical. People had very strong feelings. It was a musical that was protested as well. Of course, the generation dictated some of that. But that
1: was a totally fresh and new approach for musical theater as well but they weren't necessarily hits right off Sweeney Todd was not a hit right off uh, it took it took a while for it to catch on for for the public to catch up with it uh, hair you know, that year that hair opened on broadway what was it 68 69, 69 60 I, I think.
0: think it was off broadway
1: in 68 on broadway in 69, 69. you know what who what, which show won the tony that year 1776
0: yeah and i have an interesting story about that <laughs> because i did hair with some of the original cast members there was a reimagined production of hair and many of them think it was pushed Later in the year They think they should have been nominated For the Tony Awards a year before They think they were pushed into the next season They had been playing on Broadway for so long That it was almost a a forgotten show It wasn't a new hit show by that matter Because they felt They felt that the Tony committee Or whoever didn't want a show like that to win Which is kind of controversial
1: and crazy in its own right I don't think anybody knows the story of Hair, but people certainly remember the songs. And I think it's one of those shows that became popular mostly because of the music. I think it was more music-driven than story-driven. So yeah, so in any- that respect, it wasn't really that new and fresh in its approach.
0: Absolutely. People went to hear the songs. However, anytime you hear or see a production of Hair, everyone wants to know one thing. Are they going to be naked on stage? That has followed it everywhere it's gone. I mean, it's been done in communities that I've lived in a half a dozen times, and all anybody wants to know is, "Oh, are they naked? Are they nude on stage? How do they do that?" So, really, that kind of shock value—again, stealing from Hal Prince—you know, you want to tickle them, but then draw blood—that still
1: has some some merits. Read the if you read the original reviews of Hair in the New York Times. And some of the other critics of the day said that you know the the nudity was supposed to be shocking, and it really wasn't it was kind of they termed it kind of silly, kind of amusing, yeah, but it wasn't really oh my gosh they're naked it it was more an innocence type of uh, of nakedness it wasn't sexual well again i I know
0: from hearing firsthand that there were so many rules put on them. <laughs> to delineate it from pornography. They weren't allowed to move. They could be naked, but they just had to stand there. They couldn't move at all, or else they were going to deem that pornography and potentially shut the production down. Well, that takes us into, you know, what what contemporary audiences might know as the mega musical period in musical theater, which is really getting into the 80s and the 90s with shows like... I think Phantom of the Opera probably led the way with this grand chandelier and the boat moving and the Phantom's lair. I mean, I remember the first time I saw it, I think like many people, I could never imagine seeing something like that on stage. I thought those kinds of effects were safe for the cinema. And that gets followed up by... Mega productions of Les Miserables, where they're staging a huge French Revolution, and Miss Saigon, where they're flying in helicopters. Yeah, the helicopter
1: in Les Mis. You have the, uh, you had the barricade, which turns. Uh, it's a barricade, but it turns, and somehow it becomes the town.
0: It like goes upside down. Yeah. It's it's amazing. Talk about that period in musical theater, which you know we're not all that far removed too. I guess. Gosh, I'm old. I guess we are. It's probably 40 years ago when it started.
1: I think it's the result of audience, uh, the the taste of audiences changing. Get commercial theater, you've got to have some reason to to buy a, a ticket, which has always been, they've always been expensive. I mean, it doesn't seem like 49.95 for an orchestra seat is expensive, but it certainly was in the 1950s. Again, today uh, the cheapest seat you can get for Hamilton is one hundred ninety nine dollars. But at any rate, you, you constantly have to keep reinventing yourself to get people to buy tickets. And I think there was a, a phase, uh, in the like you said in the in the in the eighties where it was very popular to try to have. A big cinematic special effect live in front of your very eyes, almost like a magic trick to get people to see the show, to get people to buy the ticket. The chandelier, the the, the barricades, the the helicopter landing on stage, what have you. And I think that just ran its course.
0: Well, I feel like people started chasing that for a while, like yes. even with shows like Shrek, which wasn't all that long ago, I guess, they tried to recreate exactly what people thought Shrek should look like. The movie version of Shrek. I know they ran into that problem with a show like Seussical, where they tried to recreate the magical world of Dr. Seuss. And there are just some things that don't translate as easily or effectively. And at some point, your imagination... Is is you're better off with your imagination. So you look at shows like Shrek and Susical. Where I think a lot of the con- common criticism was, they lost the story. They lost what theater really is about—is trying to tell a compelling story—and they lost it behind prosthetics. They lost it behind costuming and makeup.
1: I think that goes back to what I'm saying about the commercial theater industry. You have to get people to buy a ticket, and when you are when you have a show like Shrek or Susical, where you have a built-in marketing momentum, meaning that people go to see that show with an expectation. What's the formation of that expectation? The movie. So they have to make the expectation of the musical meet the expectations that they have in their head that they formed by watching the movie. It's really a catch-22. It is. Well, that, and of course, what I
0: really wanted to talk about in giving you some background is kind of where I think Broadway and the musical theater is today, which is is almost a stripped-down, essentialist point of view. And really, the first time I saw that be successful was with Once on Broadway. And I think that was 2012, so almost 10 years ago. I saw the very last preview. And for those of you who may have not have seen that show, it's done with, like, 10 shares. The, the cast stays on stage the whole time, and they just reconfigure benches and chairs and it's all done with theatrical lighting and then a show like the color purple which was not too long ago the revival of the color purple the aesthetic of that show was just chairs chairs that were from floor to ceiling on on the background and really not much what not not much else
1: and the to that point the original run of color purple had a very elaborate set capturing the flavor of the south like in, in the movie So back to once, you know, when it played
0: off Broadway, it it wasn't critically acclaimed and it, it didn't receive great reviews. And I remember when it moved to Broadway, I thought to myself, can this possibly work? This is either going to redefine how musicals are presented or it's just going to be a footnote to somebody tried to do something once. What do you think about that? Is that as simple as... Well, they got back to the story, the, the main emphasis being on the storytelling, and that's really what
1: matters? Yeah, let me let me uh, add add to your point. You know, Come From Away is one of the most popular musicals on Broadway today, and it's all about the storytelling. You have a cast of 10 people who take on all these different roles, and they do it with 10 chairs. Uh, in case you don't know, it's about uh, 9-11 when... All the airliners going across the ocean had not reached the point of no return, so they turned around. They couldn't come back to the United States, so they landed at an abandoned airfield in Gander, Newfoundland. So this little town wound up hosting uh, about thirty-five hundred people—a town of about, you know, five hundred residents. But, but it, you're right; it is ten shares yes. just reconfigured. So I've been thinking about the answer to that question, and of course. You know, we say, we use the words like, well, did they decide to do this? Did they decide to do that? But there's not one person sitting in an office someplace and they have a breakfast meeting on a Tuesday morning. They say, okay, producers, composers, and writers, from now on, we're going to abandon the big special effects, the big cinematic effects. We're going to start going to strip down musicals and bring people in with our compelling storytelling. They should have meetings, though. They should have. But that's, that's that's not what's happening. But it but it evolves and musical theater has been evolving since 1900, and I, I think the evolution gradually was that, that producers, composers, lyricists gradually realized that the big cinematic effect had run its course. That isn't bringing people in anymore, um, so. How can we bring them in? We have to bring them in with something they cannot find on TV that they cannot find in the musical. I mean, in the in the movies. What can we do on the stage that a movie or a television show television show cannot do? And that's what draws people in. Today. Just the
0: compelling nature the, the of compelling telling storytelling.
1: Hamilton does that.
0: You know, I think that that. I don't disagree. So I think where we are now is a place where we have people getting back to storytelling and essentialism and just what's needed to tell the story. That's one camp of how theater is produced in 2020. And then the other camp is trying to innovate and embrace the digital era, the digital revolution. I saw a production of Jesus Christ Superstar in 2015 that did that uh with with uh, mediocre success I'll say it was almost like being at a at a football game or a baseball game they had like a digital ribbon board that had like text flying across it it was just as distracting as effective but a show like Dear Evan Hansen which I feel like has found a way to integrate digital technology and the digital era And that is not a stripped down essential approach with all of the LED boards flying in and out, but very much appropriate and successful in the telling of that story.
1: That was the most brilliant storytelling in the art form known as musical comedy I think I've ever seen. And why do you think that is? Because it was, I thought it was the perfect blend of, of acting, of musical emotion, And uh, storytelling—the way it was done, the way the music was woven in and out uh, of the story. So.
0: What about the digital component? Because there was a lot of things happening in Dear Evan, Dear Evan Hansen. There is a lot of things happening, and a lot of that digital media board and you know, evoking social media and the scrolling of today. Oh, yes, I remember you know, that, yeah. It, you're inundated with, with it in Dear Evan Hansen. But I, thought, I,
1: but I thought it was part of the story rather than more like a special effect. A lot of I times agree. they do that as a special effect, to keep the audience attention. But I think in Dear Evan Hansen, all of that was part of the storytelling. I definitely agree. And I think
0: you hit on it. Like if it's essential to the story, then it's compelling and it works. If you're just doing technology and digital effects for the sake of digital effects sake, you could get into trouble.
1: Well, like the revival of, uh, of, uh, Sunday in the Park with George, where they had the entire set was digital. So that was the not the Jake Gyllenhaal revival, but the revival before that. It was always it was all. I mean, it was beautiful. Paintings would appear and disappear, but it was it it wasn't part of the storytelling. I I saw a local production of uh, of of uh, Sunday in the Park with George that was. Done more or less in concert style that I thought was more compelling because the story came forward.
0: I feel like with a show like Sunday in the park with George specifically, that is a challenge anytime you produce it because you're basing it in large part off of this iconic painting and so you're always going to be compared with how it looks on stage in comparison to the iconic painting. And since Sondheim wrote it, if you if you lose focus for one second, you're gonna miss a lot of a lot of stuff. Well, George, (laughs) I think we're almost at the end of our time here at this episode of The Peanut Gallery. You do know that at the end of every episode of The Peanut Gallery, we like to share a story. Whose turn is it? I think
1: it's yours. Do you have one? It's also, is it my turn to buy lunch next time? Do you have time to
0: prepare for either? Do you need to make a trip to the ATM machine?
1: (laughs) Go ahead. I have a story of not being... A uh, a victim of the Peanut Gallery, as I'm not a performer like you are, but I have a a story about being part of the Peanut Gallery that almost blew up in my face. Uh, When In the Heights first opened on Broadway, it was still in previews. Nobody outside of New York knew who Lin Manuel Miranda is. I went to see Dear Evan or uh, 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 In the Heights. Well, in previews, enjoyed it very much. Two days later, I'm at the Dramatist bookshop in the theater district, and I look over as I'm browsing the aisles, and who do I see but Lynn manuel Miranda himself, his self, leaning against the wall, texting on a Blackberry. Remember the Blackberries?
0: He loves that place.
1: <laughs> and as I walked by, I said, I saw you're in the Heights the other, the other night, enjoyed it very much. He, a cool, cool man. And uh, I said, uh, I was very refreshed because it's not often someone my age leaves a contemporary musical humming one of the melodies. He stopped what he was doing, and he looked up. He said, oh, really? You hummed one of the melodies, man? Which which one was it? It's the one that goes, Carnival de Barrio. And he got this real funny look on his face, and he kind of looked down, and he said, that's the only melody I did not write. (laughs) So... He interrupted my apologies by saying, it's, it's okay, man, dude, dude, it's, it's okay, it's okay. It's just that it was a melody for a Puerto Rican folk song that I heard my parents playing when I was growing up that I kind of ripped off. And I looked at it and I says, well, don't you worry about that because George Gershwin did the same thing. He goes, what, what are you talking about, man? What are you talking about? I said, Porgy and Bess. He, he ripped off at least two uh, Hebrew folk songs, Jewish melodies, and worked him into Porgy and Bess. It ain't necessarily so, is the melody for the call of the Torah in the Jewish liturgy. He goes, oh. And he had this real nice smile and kind of looked up. Nothing more to be said. The peanut gallery walked away. (laughs) I think the lesson
0: to be learned there is that everyone steals from everybody at some point, (laughs) even the great Pulitzer Prize winners. (laughs) Ah, that's great. Well, all right, folks. That's about a... It's going to about do it for us here at this episode of the peanut gallery. Thank you so much for joining us and listening for George Harder. My name is Tim Scott.
1: Thanks so much. So long.